Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. If you have a Bible, you can take it out to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. This is part eight, part eight of our series through the book of 2 Peter, and um, we're going back into chapter 3. We ended last week on verse 10, and so I'm going to be picking up again at verse 10 and then moving through to verse 13. But uh, just to bring you up to speed, Peter has been responding to false teachers that are in the church among us, he says, and uh, One of the things that he wants to kind of zero in on is a group of false teachers who've been denying the return of Jesus Christ. They've been saying things like, well, Jesus is taking so long to come back. He's obviously not coming back. And so let's live as we please. How about you follow my teaching? It's uh, really all about self-indulgence. And so many signed up to follow these false teachers And it was on the back of the excuse that Jesus is not coming back, and so we can avoid accountability. No one's going to call us to account, and so let's live and eat and drink and please ourselves as much as we like. We saw this in verse 4, for example. This is their their question or their um, objection. They will say, Peter reminds us, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? And then Peter responds with a brilliant response. exposition showing them the fault of their reasoning and in that he gives three reasons why Jesus hasn't come back yet and the first one was God's perspective of time where he tells us that one day to God is like a thousand years to us and that God's perspective of time is very different to ours and so really it hasn't been long God says it really hasn't been that long you think it's been long but it hasn't been that long in terms of God's understanding and then the second reason is God's patience The longer Jesus holds back his return, the longer more of the flock of God get to come in. God is patient with sinners. God is giving time to sinners. God is wanting sinners to repent and come into the fold. And then we ended on God's great plan, which is where Peter says it very plainly in verse 10. He says this, but the day of the Lord will come. They've been saying, is he coming? Peter ends in verse 10. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So we've been talking a little bit, obviously, about the return of Jesus. And last week, we did remind ourselves that although we are sure about the return, we are certain about the return of Jesus, what we are uncertain about is when. We don't know when. And the Bible reminds us, Jesus himself reminds us, that that's okay. We're not meant to know when. And despite Jesus telling us very clearly that no one knows, history, false teachers, have loved to get onto the bandwagon and try and figure out when Jesus is coming back. And so let's just remind ourselves once again of the words of Jesus In Matthew 24, verse 36, he says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. In verse 42, he says, You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, The Son of Man is coming at an hour 
you do not expect. And so since we are talking of all these things, and the text itself today is going to uh, force this thinking on us, I want to share with you, play a little bit more of open cards with you in terms of my understanding of eschatology. Now, eschatology, I said last week, is an important word for us to think through. It's just the technical word for the end times, or what, what happens when Jesus comes back, and what is the afterlife like? You know, it's easy for us to talk about eternal life, but what is it like? And we're going to touch on some of that today. Now, just a few preliminary things. All Christians agree that Jesus is coming back, but not all Christians agree about what happens when Jesus comes. So just like there is uncertainty, and rightly so, around when, there is also a range of thinking about what happens when Jesus comes back. And so this area of eschatology has a closed-handed issue, which is Jesus is coming bodily, but what happens when he comes is open-handed. And there have been Christians throughout history, faithful Christians, who have held to various orthodox positions. And those three, the three main schools of thought around eschatology would be these schools of thought. There would be a premillennial school, there is a postmillennial school, and there is an amillennial school of thought. And those are three of the Biggest, strongest views throughout church history. And there are solid Christians on all sides of that spectrum. Now, if you're not sure of what those words are, it's okay. I know that I'm speaking to a very varied audience today. Some of you are familiar with this terminology. Some of you have no idea what we're talking about. Let me just say that the pre obviously hints at uh, something coming before. And so the premillennialist argues that Jesus is coming back and then there will be a millennium or a thousand years. The post-millennialist obviously means after. So he's saying, no, no, the millennium is going to happen and then Jesus comes back. So the millennium is before Jesus returns. And the amillennialist also agrees that the millennium is before Jesus comes back. And so Jesus comes back and then wraps up history. Now, you don't need to remember that, right? Unless this really interests you. But the debate has been heated at times. For example, we, uh, we have some rhetoric that says that the millennium is the thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. Isn't that interesting? And so it has got heated through the generations. And once again, I know I'm talking to a very varied audience. And some of you today will agree with my eschatology. And for that I am grateful. And I would uh, implore you to... Um, to agree with my position because as I do every week, I labor hard to present to you a faithful interpretation of the biblical text, and I know that's why you're here. But some of you will disagree with my eschatology, especially if you hold to a subset of that first position. That premillennial position has a subset and it's called dispensationalism. Now, there's another big word. But uh, some of you will be familiar with that, and some of you have got no idea, and that's fine. 
But you may disagree with my view, especially if you are of the dispensational school of thought. Now, the dispensational school of thought is a new school of thought. It is not an orthodox school of thought. In fact, it was founded, you'll see there on the slide, by a man named John Nelson Darby. And I know that some of our congregation members have had uh, some history with this movement called the Plymouth Brethren. But John Nelson Darby came up with this novel understanding of the return of Jesus and the events around the return of Jesus. In fact, the Plymouth Brethren became a cult out of uh, Christianity. And so much of his views were popularized under two major works. One was one of his followers called uh, Charles Ryrie, and the other one was Charles Schofield, who wrote the Schofield Study Bible. Now, if that makes nothing, no sense to you at all, maybe if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you'll remember the, the, the series of books called Left Behind. The Left Behind series of books are based on the teachings of John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. And so if this is your view, all I would ask you, if you disagree, is to hear God's word today and to consider another view, another option. To consider that your view, even if you hold to it passionately, may not be the right view. And I say that because I know that sometimes people in this camp don't see it as an open-handed issue. They are so passionate about it that it becomes a make-or-break issue. And I want to suggest to you that that is an immature position to be in. Then thirdly, so some of you will agree, some of you will disagree. Thirdly, some of you don't really care. Hey, it's kind of like that pan-millennialist position. I don't know how it's going to end, but it's going to pan out in the end, you know. So who cares? And I want to just suggest to you that, uh, that we do have to think about this stuff. You know, we do have to think about it. Why? Because firstly, it's in the Bible, and, and we want to be men and women of the Bible. We want to think through what the Bible teaches. And secondly, it actually does affect how we see Christ and the glory of Christ and His church. And, it, and I think that really, if you're thinking, well, this really doesn't matter, I think it does matter. Because deep down inside, you know that this world isn't all there is. You know that there's something more to life. When you when you getting all philosophical on your bed at night or in the morning or whenever you do it, there are moments where you're thinking, what is the purpose of this all? What are, what are we doing here on this planet floating in space? And C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So, let's read our text. All that by way of introduction. 2 Peter 3, 10-13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens 
will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so the question we're going to ask ourselves, and there's just three main points, is what happens? What happens when Jesus returns? And really that's an important question. We need to ask, what does the Bible say when Jesus returns? Now, there are many books we could go to because there's lots that's been written about it in Scripture. But I want to just suggest to you a principle that when it comes to figuring out eschatology and what happens when Jesus returns, it's essential that we start with the clear and not the obscure. If you start with the obscure, what you end up doing is you end up forcing the clear to become obscure. For example, let me be a little bit more clear. If you start in Revelation or Daniel, which is Scripture. I'm not saying it's not Scripture. I'm just saying it's apocalyptic literature. It's prophetic literature. Whereas you could start with Jesus and his teaching or Paul or Peter, which is not apocalyptic or prophetic, but is didactic. It's straightforward, written to the church. This is what's going to happen. It's not figurative. It's not pictorial. It's not apocalyptic. It's not graphic. It's clear. So my suggestion when it comes to this question is we must make Jesus, Paul, and Peter shape our foundation and then allow John and Daniel in the apocalyptic literature to fit into what we've already established. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to have the apocalyptic tail wagging the Jesus dog. And we can't have that. So my first point is, what happens when Jesus comes back? Number one, return leads to rapture. The return of Jesus leads to the rapture. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Peter says that the return of Jesus will be sudden. It will be sudden. Like an unexpected thief. We won't expect it. Remember last week we spoke about the day of Noah. Everybody will be carrying on as per normal. But notice what else he tells us here. He also tells us how Christians should be living in light of the second coming. Which means there are Christians on earth when Jesus comes. Let me say it this way, which means that the church is on earth when Jesus comes at the second coming, which is not what the dispensationalist believes. The dispensationalist believes that the church will be taken away before Jesus comes. Look at this in verse 11 and 12. Peter says, the day of the Lord will come in verse 10. Then in verse 11 and 12, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, because this is what's going to happen when Jesus comes. We'll get to that shortly. What sort of people, he has his point, what sort of people ought you to be, Christians, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire? You see, Peter is emphasizing here that the church has a duty to fulfill until the day of the Lord. The church 
We must be living days, and in these days, holy and godly lives, hastening and waiting for the return of Christ. There is not a hint here that the church is not on the earth at the coming of the Lord. So the dispensationalist says that Jesus is going to come back secretly and invisibly seven years before the second coming. And that's when the rapture of the church takes place. And so seven years of tribulation are going to be poured out on the earth, and Jesus is going to save the church from that tribulation. And those that are left behind are unbelievers, and God will deal with them in his wrath. But that doesn't square with what Peter is saying here. Not at all. Peter is saying, Christians, you need to live lives until the day of the Lord that are holy and godly, hastening and waiting for that day. And it's on that day when the rapture will happen. And so my position and the orthodox historical position is that the rapture of the church will happen but it will happen when Jesus comes at his second coming, not before the second coming. And this is clear if we turn to the famous rapture verse, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, from verse 15 through to 17. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, those of us who are alive, waiting and hastening the day of the Lord, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So it's very clear who he's re referencing. We haven't died. That's not Christians who've died and gone to heaven. We who are alive until the coming of the Lord, look what he says, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We will not be glorified. We will not leave. We will not go to Jesus before those who have already gone to Jesus because they've died. So it's very clear that, that that's not going to happen. We will be left until the coming of the Lord. Then he says, this is what's going to happen to us, to those who are alive. For the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven, this is the return, with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Let's just pause there. Does that sound like a secret coming to you? There's nothing secretive about this. Why? Because this is the second coming. This is not a secret coming. This is a second coming. This is the return of Christ. And here's what will happen when Jesus comes. The trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. All our loved ones who've passed away, whose spirits are in the presence of God, they will rise first. This is incredible. We'll touch on this shortly. Then he says, verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left at the return, will be caught up. That's where we find the word parousia or rapture. We will be raptured, caught up together with them, those who've died, who've now been raised, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The dead are raised. Those who are alive are raptured. And we meet him in the air and welcome him back to earth. 
Now, you might be thinking, wow, that's pretty cosmic, and it is. And you'll see why as we get to point number three. Why does it need to happen this way? Why, why does there need to be a resurrection? Why do we need to be caught up in the air? And we'll get to that shortly. But another way, just briefly, another way to argue this question of when the rapture happens is to ask the question, well, how many trumpets or how many tribulation trumpets are there after the last trumpet? And it is a bit of a trick question because the answer is none. How can there be a trumpet after the last trumpet? Because it's the last trumpet. Now we're referencing here uh, the trumpets of Revelation. There are seven trumpets and each of those trumpets are trumpets of trial and tribulation that get poured out on the earth. But notice when the text tells us Jesus comes back. Firstly, if we read the text in Revelation 11, verse 15, it says it this way. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. It's the last trumpet. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven. Sounds like the text we just read, right? The cry of command. The angels. The trumpet sounding. And here's the voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's clearly second coming language. And when does it happen? When the seventh trumpet blows. And so then we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul argues this way, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51. He says, behold, yes, this is the other great rapture text. Behold, in verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not going to all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. The dead will be raised. Those who are alive will be raptured. When? At the last trumpet. After the tribulation, not before. Now, just those are some theological reasons, some textual reasons. Some of the logical reasons why this is not a possibility, is because if we have a secret second coming, that means Christ's second coming is his third coming, right? Logically, that isn't helpful because the Bible only speaks of two advents of Christ, not three. Also, it creates more problems because if we have a secret rapture seven years prior to the second coming, now we know more than what Jesus knows when he's coming. Because it's precisely seven years. And so everyone who's alive during those seven years knows exactly when Jesus is coming. And so you can rub those verses out of your Bible because they no longer apply. This is a problem. Another logical problem is what happens in those seven years is apparently a focus or a judgment on Israel. And specifically on Israel. And horrific judgment. A judgment that will make the Holocaust look like nothing. Is that really what we want? No. And I don't believe it's what God wants either. And then the Bible tells us that when the harvest actually happens at the end of the age, it doesn't happen before the end of the age. The harvest happens at the end of the age. And it's only at the end of the age when the wheat and the tares are separated. And so logically, there are many problems associated with that view. But let me move on. 
Point number two. The return of Jesus will issue forth in resurrection and judgment. This is very clear. 2 Peter 3 verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are to be stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter is very clear here. He tells us that it's when Jesus comes back that there will be a day of judgment. Not before and not later. It's at the day of his return when the ungodly will be judged. Not later. This is the accountability that the false teachers were wishing to escape. But Peter reminds us that there is no escape. There's no escape from the return of Jesus and there's no escape from the day of judgment because they are happening at the same time. The return and day of judgment will require the resurrection of all the dead. Now, if you're wondering what happens when Jesus comes back to our bodies, here it is. Everyone will be resurrected, both believer and unbeliever. We will be resurrected. Everyone will stand before God face to face in a body to give an account. In John chapter 5, we read this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is a resurrection for both the godly and the ungodly, but very different judgments. Both believer and unbeliever are resurrected at the same hour. Notice the text says, an hour is coming. It's not a different hour for each group. No, no, it's the same hour, the hour of the return of Jesus. And at the hour of the return of Jesus, all who are dead will be raised and will be separated into two different judgment groups. The goat and the sheep will be separated. The wheat and the tares will be separated. And thankfully for the believer... Our debt has already been paid. For the believer, Jesus was judged on our behalf. Jesus took the judgment of God against us upon himself. That's the good news of the gospel. One more verse, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 to 10. It says this, it's so clear. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven... With his mighty angels in flaming fire. Nothing secretive again, eh? This is clearly the second coming. Inflicting, here's what's going to happen inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. The return will usher in universal resurrection, but also universal judgment. And if you're not in Christ, I must say that the language there is jarring. If you're not in Christ, you need to be in Christ. Because otherwise you're in trouble. 
And this isn't, this, isn't the, this isn't the injustice of God. This is the perfect justice of God. God is a just God. And the problem here, the problem with those who will suffer this eternal punishment is that they have trusted in their own righteousness. That's, that's what's happening here. It's, it's only that we Christians, the only reason that we will not be judged with the wrath of God is because Jesus was judged with the wrath of God on our behalf because we look to Christ as our righteousness. We've, we've chosen Jesus. Jesus, you are my righteousness. But the unbeliever wants to keep his own righteousness. The unbeliever holds on to his own righteousness, his own good deeds, his own sinful ways. He trusts in his own righteousness, which actually is filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. And so finally, the return will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. When? Then. Then. When the day of the Lord comes, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Verse 13, But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness Dwells According to what promise? The promise of His return. The promise of His return. We are waiting. At the promise of His return, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth. Comprehensive cosmic renewal. Now, what's interesting is that both Peter and Jesus love to reference Noah, don't they? And so Peter does that earlier on. He spoke about the judgment that came upon the world of Noah and the flood. And yet, he says, even though the world was judged by water, there was a new world that emerged. Not a different planet, but a renewed world. And then Peter says, and that renewed world of Noah's is now being kept for a day of Judgment again, but not by water, he says, because that's why we got the rainbow, right? The real reason. Not by water, he says, but by fire. There is a day coming that the earth, Noah's world, this world, our world, will be judged by fire. And here's my conclusion, is that it's not that it will all be destroyed, but that it will all be purified. Just like Noah's world was purged, so too our world will be purified. Yes, some things will be burned up. The text tells us that the heavenly bodies will be burned up. Not necessarily the earth itself, but the stars and the sun and the moon. Why? Because Revelation tells us we don't need those anymore to give us light because Christ will be the light of the new world. And so if there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, really what it is is heaven is coming to earth. With Jesus comes heaven. Heaven comes to earth. And that means new bodies for believers. New bodies just like Jesus. People often ask me, well, what's it going to be like? And the only answer we can give is it's going to be like Jesus' body. Jesus received a resurrected, glorified body. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father in that very glorified body. And He did it not just for Himself, but for ours. His resurrection demands our resurrection. If Christ was raised, we too shall be raised. 
1 Corinthians 15 verse 52. For the trumpet will sound. There's our trumpet again. And the dead will be raised. Look at this. Imperishable. This is great news because I don't like the dust to dust stuff. We will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. We shall be changed. Look at this. Verse 53. For this perishable body and man, I'm feeling it as I mature. (laughs) This perishable body must Put on the imperishable. Praise God. And this mortal body must put on immortality. You want to know what's the afterlife going to be like? It's going to be incredible. You have everlasting life in glorified bodies that never age, that never get sick, that never get tired. There's going to be a bodily eternal life heaven as we speak now heaven is not our home heaven is to be present with the lord to be absent from the body absent from the body is to be present with the lord and it's glorious but it's not our eternal abode this is what this text is all about the new heavens and new earth are our final destiny where we will be resurrected and given glorified bodies. And the kingdom of God will be on earth like we pray. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that day will come when Jesus returns. And look at, it, look at verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable. When is that? Well, he's just told us when, right? At the second coming. That's when this happens. That's the only time we get given immortal bodies. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, here's what's going to happen. Then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. No more death. No more sin. No more sickness. That's the Christian hope. The Christian hope is a bodily resurrection and an eternal life with God in the new heavens and new earth. And all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ and in this glorified, renewed world. And so my conclusion, and that's my eschatology in a nutshell, when Jesus comes, it all happens. If you're confused, that's all you need to remember. When Jesus comes is when it all happens. You don't need a chart. You don't need a science degree. You don't need a theological degree. It's it's clear. It's patently clear that when Jesus comes is when the rapture happens. When Jesus comes is when the resurrection happens. When Jesus comes is when judgment day happens. When Jesus comes is when the new heavens and the new earth come and we live with God forever. The idea, there is an idea, the premillennialist holds to the idea that after Jesus comes back, there will be another thousand years. But here's the disappointing thing. It's a thousand years with sin, a thousand years with sickness, 
and a thousand years with death. That's not what my Bible says. What my Bible says is when the immortal puts on mortality, uh, when the mortality puts on immortality, then death is swallowed up in victory. We cannot, my, my submission to you is we cannot, after Jesus comes back, have it as business as usual. What a disappointment. That for me is the greatest anticlimax of all theological positions that I know of. Imagine Jesus comes back and there's still sin. And there's still sickness. And there's still death for a thousand years with him on earth. How? I ask. That is not a glorious hope. The glorious hope is that when Jesus comes, sin and death and sickness and rebellion is put away forever. And we live with him forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promise. We thank you that you are coming back. We thank you that you are sending your son. And when you send your son, you will make all things new. You will wipe away all tears. All things will be made right. All wrongs will be righted. We long for that day. We long for the day when Jesus comes. And if we're not alive when he comes, we, we, we'll, be, we'll be dust. But we have a hope because the dust will be raised and we'll be given new bodies. Just like our Lord's. And we will live forever together with the saints in a new world. Heaven will come to earth and God will dwell with man and we will be together. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. We thank you that marriage today is a picture, a picture of your commitment to your church. That, Lord, we, your church, are your bride. And you're coming back to fetch your bride. And when you come and fetch her, you make her pure, spotless. And we join in the marriage feast together. With glorified bodies, we will celebrate for all eternity. We will celebrate the Lamb who was slain to take us home. We thank you for this glorious hope. Fill us with hope now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.